2: Previously on Murder on the Space Coast.
3: There's no question that it's widespread corruption. Um, it's it's fraud. Um, it's caused an unknown number of wrongful convictions. Three of which we know about: Juan Ramos, Wilton Dej, and William Dillon. And somebody has to do something about this.
1: When the lights go out and you're there alone, you you can't do nothing but think about it. You know, you you're trying to hold on to hope, but you know you. You file a motion, they turn it down. They file them, and then after a while, you're like, "Well, just tell me when it happens." You know, just tell me yes or no. I don't want to think about it. You know, it's because you got to live inside or out, whether you're innocent or guilty. You can't live outside and be inside. You'll go crazy. I've seen it before. I've seen many a guys that couldn't handle it, and they were guilty. So you know, just imagine you shouldn't be there.
2: I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and welcome back to Murder on the Space Coast, a podcast told in 14 parts detailing a series of terrible convictions during the early 1980s that saw innocent men sent to prison. Were they all part of some weird coincidence? What we know is that the same prosecutor had a role in all of the cases, the same fraudulent dog handler was used, and the state also relied on jailhouse informants to bolster their weak cases. Jailhouse informants, whom we know now in some cases, lied. Warning, the language and themes can be a bit salty, so it may not be suitable for sensitive or younger listeners. I think it would be naive to believe that mistakes are impossible. They do happen, and sometimes innocent people suffer. That's life. One time is maybe a mistake. Two times makes you wonder. By the third, you're channeling your inner fox moulder trying to get your mind wrapped around it. A fourth? Well, that would just be mind-blowing territory, right? And by now, you're probably wondering, is that all the cases, or are there others we don't even know about? Now, we've heard from some attorneys who have been calling for an investigation into these practices for years. But what I didn't know is that our own Attorney General, Pam Bondi, called for one as part of her campaign rhetoric in 2010, before she was elected. My buddy, News columnist Scott Maxwell with the Orlando Sentinel also covered the Wilton Dedge and William Dillon cases for his newspaper. He recently contacted me after listening to the first four episodes of season two and wrote a column about our Murder on the Space Coast podcast. He then also shared a very interesting video from the Geraldo at Large show on Fox News from 2010. That day, Geraldo's guests were Barry Sheck, the famous DNA lawyer who was part of the O.J. Simpson Dream Team, and who also helped at Wilton Dedge, and Florida Attorney General candidate Pam Bondi, talking about these very cases from Brevard County and the use of fraudulent dog handler John Preston. The people over at Fox News have graciously allowed us to use some of that audio from the program. Here's a little bit of Geraldo Rivera, Pam Bondi, and Barry Sheck talking about it
0: what I didn't realize until Barry Sheck called me was that many of the men that this dirty dog handler put away starting back in the 80's are still behind bars
3: I mean this guy was uh, using basically junk science claiming that this dog could find weapons underwater it was really unreal back in the 80's and now we learn that there are still at least in Florida four people four in Florida that are still in prison
0: I wanna concentrate on a dog handler whose science as exposed on 2020, way back when, was so pathetic that cops had to know. They definitely knew. Gerardo. Judges had to know. Toronto, they knew about him, and they knew that the jailhouse snitches were lying. What's got to happen is an independent investigation by the attorney general's office. You've got to go back and look at all these old cases. You've got to see how many. By the U.S. attorney general's office. Well, no, the state attorney state, General, by, state. state
2: by State by State, state, state. attorney-general Okay, all right, state I'm attorney all General. for it state if they do it. I'm... So there it is right from the mouth of our current Attorney General, Pam Bondi, saying that the Florida Attorney General should be the one to investigate. Well, that was nearly seven years ago. I contacted her office to ask, um, what happened? And to be honest, I'm a little confused by their initial response to me. It said in part, and I'll quote, It was determined that these defendants have either confessed to the crime, been released, are deceased, had charges dropped, are serving time for separate charges, and or Preston did not testify in the case. Huh? Um, I don't think it mattered if someone was already out of prison or passed away. I thought an independent investigation would be just that, a look into whether there was prosecutorial misconduct going on. And regarding the case of Gary Bennett, her office also said this, and again, I quote, Within weeks of taking office, the Attorney General personally met with her Chief of Capital Appeals, Carolyn Snurkarski, to review this matter. In the Bennett case, Snurkarski concluded that there was sufficient independent evidence and every appellate court also agreed. Um, again, where is the independent investigation? Because her response sounds an awful lot like State Attorney Phil Archer's response last year when I asked about Gary Bennett. Pam Bondi appears to be parroting what state officials have been saying about the case for years. So I contacted her office again and made my request as crystal clear as I can. I want to know if she ever actually followed through on her promise to do an independent investigation. And if she has, I want copies of everything. So hang tight, I'll keep you posted. So back to our story. We know that Juan Ramos, Wilton Dedge, and William Dillon were wrongfully sent to prison by the machine that was chugging away in the state attorney's office here in Brevard County. And Gary Bennett? Well, his case, as we detailed in season one of Murder on the Space Coast, sure looks like it's a fourth. Unfortunately for Gary, there is no DNA left in his case to test and prove his innocence. And his appeals have stalled at the Fifth District Court of Appeals, where the judges issued what's called a... Percurium affirmed instead of issuing an actual opinion. What this means is that it can go no further. But we'll get back to Gary in a little bit. And please, if you haven't already listened to season one, then stop right now and go back. I promise I'll be here when you return. So far, we've heard the stories of Wilton Dedge and Juan Ramos and how they were arrested, tried, and convicted for something they did not do. And while I covered the Dedge case... As a reporter here for Florida Today, it wasn't until a few years after Dej was exonerated that I learned about a man by the name of William Dillon. And it's actually kind of funny how his name popped up on my radar. I was at my desk here in our newsroom when one of our librarians, Mabel was her name, and I think every old newsroom was required to have at least one person named Mabel running around. Anyway, she swung by my desk to let me know that some Orlando-based weekly had called and was asking us to send them photos of William Dillon. She said she thought I might want to know. I gave her a smile and told her to lose that phone number for the Orlando Weekly. I researched the case, and sure enough, William Dillon was trying to get evidence in his murder case tested for DNA. Then I started recognizing names and tactics in Dillon's case. I set up an interview with him in prison, and... You know, I've interviewed a lot of guys in prison, and while, of course, everyone is innocent, I left that prison that day absolutely knowing that this guy was innocent. I wasn't the only one. Here's Chief Assistant Public Defender Mike Parolo describing the strong first impression he was left with after meeting Dylan, whom everyone calls Bill.
0: A couple of days after that initial day they met uh, Bill went out to the jail. And because our office didn't represent him, so I didn't have an old file to look at. I mean, there was obviously the court file, you know, not our own file to look at, our own discovery and attorney's notes and stuff like that. So I just went out to the jail and, and we had a pretty long conversation. And at the end of that conversation, to me, it was, I truly believed him. It didn't feel like he was just trying to make things up or trying to grab a piece here and a piece there and try to you know, spin it his way. It was just, it felt very genuine coming from him. He sat a foot away from me, and there was glass between us, but he sat basically a foot away, and looked in my eyes and said, you know, this is what happened, and and gave me his side of what had happened, where he was exactly, and what he was doing that particular night. And, you know, it was one of those rare occasions. Look at the guy instantly and said, I believe him, Right, right from the day one. It was one of those things where it was kind of a, refreshing in a way. But Bill Dillon's tragic tale, I know I keep using that phrase, but it's true,
2: his tragic tale begins about 27 years before he ever met an attorney by the name of Mike Prolo or was interviewed by a reporter by the name of John Torres. It started the night of August 16th, 1981, when James Dvorak of Melbourne Beach decided to drive his Dodge Rambler over to nearby Canova Beach. If you were gay and looking for an anonymous encounter back then, Canova Beach was where it was at. The overgrown brush gave the park plenty of good spots to meet someone and be discreet. AIDS wouldn't become a real worry for another year or so, meaning the only risk was something that was described to me as, quote, fag rolling. That's not my term, nor my words, obviously. This is what the police called it, and this is the language used in the newspapers of that time period. Fag rolling was when someone pretended to be gay in order to rob the gay man after he was in a compromising position. Dvorak was a regular there, according to friends who would later speak to police. So that night, Dvorak walks into the woods and he doesn't come out. He's brutally murdered just beaten beyond recognition. I mean, his face was basically caved in. He is found by out-of-state campers in the morning who had slept in their car and ventured into one of the overgrown areas to relieve themselves. And the next part is important for later. The police never revealed the weapon used to bludgeon Dvorak to death. So two days later, Bill Dylan and his brother Joe are sitting in Joe's Camaro smoking a joint before heading over to the Pelican Bar on A1A for drinks, Joe's car was parked pretty close to where the murder scene was, and that's when they get approached by a man and a woman.
1: Were they? Cops? I read about it. They were sheriff detectives. They were a man and woman. One went to my window and one went to my brother's window. He was driving. I was in the passenger side. I remember, at the time I'm smoking a joint, and I got it cupped in my hand. Now, when they say the sheriff's department, I don't know. Any, I don't think anything about a murder. I'm thinking I'm going to be arrested for smoking this joint and they started saying, well, we're here investigating a murder that happened here. And when they did that, I jumped right out and say, well, I read about it in the paper. What do you mean you read about it in the paper? They said, well, where was I? I said, it was over here. Now, I seen the yellow tape on there. I seen the yellow tape, it was yellow taped off. They're saying, well, how do you know that? It wasn't in the paper. I don't tell them that i seen the yellow tape. And they took my picture, a Polaroid snapshot. He said, we'd like to question you about the murray. I said, I don't know anything about it. Can you come down? I said, no, I can't. I don't know anything about it. Nothing. I couldn't help you in the least. Well, how about coming in tomorrow sometime at 1030? And now I'm basically stoned anyway. I'm trying to get away from them now. And in that same, same instance, they said, well, can you come in and see us tomorrow about 1030? I said, sure. I agreed to it. I only agreed to it because they were going to leave me alone and I was going to go to the Pelican and we were going to go about our way.
2: So the brothers go out, have themselves a night, and forget all about their little conversation with the police. Of course, the morning rolls around and Bill blows off his appointment with those two detectives. A few days go by, and well, he does what most beach bums his age do. He goes to the beach.
1: So a few days later, I go down to Buccaneer Beach, which is right across from where my parents live. And it's a beach that I've gone to multiple times. So I happen to go over there, and the people there tell me that the sheriff's department was here looking for me. I said, What for? They said, Well, they didn't say what they were here looking for you for. So I go right across the street to the Sambos restaurant and call them and say, My name is such and such. Are you looking for me? They said, well, Where are you? I said, I'm at the Sambos restaurant. They said, Hold on, we'll be right there. Within minutes, they came zooming in like a SWAT team, just two cars, but they zoomed in so fast. One came in one entrance and one came in the other entrance. And said, we need to take you down to the station to question you. I said, sure, sure. So they took me down to the station and questioned me. She asked me multiple questions about where I was and stuff and whatever and stuff. And she asked me, where were you nine and a half days ago? I said, ma'am, I said, to be quite honest with you, I don't know where I was nine and a half days ago. I cannot honestly sit here and tell you that I know exactly where I was nine and a half days ago. I said, I'm going to sit here and think about it for a while, but I really don't know.
2: The questioning is getting a little more intense and a little more persistent. But Bill is too cool for school, and so he doesn't sweat it in the least. Though he probably should have been.
1: I'm not taking it personally yet. I'm really not taking it personal because I had nothing to do with it. So it doesn't really, I'm not really personalizing the fact to say they're going to pin a crime on me. All they're doing is searching, trying to find out who committed the crime. And I didn't commit the crime, so I'm not really sweating in the sense to say that they're going to find something out about that I don't want them to find. Other than the fact of any activities that I might be doing, any, like smoking a joint or having some reefer on me or something like that. It has nothing to do with any kind of murder scenes or anything like that. So it doesn't, it doesn't really come in my, in my head that, that they're really trying to arrest me for murder.
2: And so after about two hours, the female detective asks Bill to sign a piece of paper. He told me that she described it as a waiver or something. Then, curiously enough, she tells him, ah, we don't really need the waiver anymore. She asks Bill to wad up the paper really good. He had no idea the state was going to give that wadded-up document to, yep, you guessed it, dog handler John Preston. Remember, the state did the same thing later with Wilton Dedge, using a wadded-up paper towel from the restroom to help tie him to a rape that he did not commit. What Bill does not know is that police have recovered a bloody yellow t-shirt that was worn by the killer. And now they are going to put Preston to work, tying all of their loose ends together. Here is Seth Miller of the Innocence Project of Florida talking about what the state did next and his thoughts on it.
3: Also, unsurreptitiously, the state had Mr. Dillon crumple up a piece of paper. And then that piece of paper was used in a scent detection lineup with many other pieces of paper, and uh, you know the dog somehow was able to pick out Mr. Dillon's um, piece of paper as a scent that was also on the T-shirt. So what they did, they used these two scent trackings to both connect Mr. Dillon to the crime and connect him to the T-shirt. And, uh, and and so what you had here is not being able at all to connect Mr. Dillon to these two things. The dog was a central piece of evidence that. That uh, you know made it clear that he was part of the crime. Um, unfortunately, what we found out about this dog is that, and the handler is that they're completely fraudulent. That dogs can't do what you know Mr. Preston's dog was doing. And I think what's important to understand about this is that if the dog can't couldn't do what he was doing, you know the question becomes how was he always getting law enforcement suspect Mr. Dillon in this case? And um, the only answer is that. He's being fed information about the case that allowed him to understand the facts of the case so he could then manufacture the evidence um, in order to get the conviction. That's precisely what happened in this case. We think that it's happened in, to as little as 60 and as high as maybe 150 or 200 cases that um, Mr. Preston testified in in Florida. So
2: after Bill wads up that paper, he's told he can leave. He calls his mother to come and pick him up. She does. And what follows is a lecture about changing his life and trying to get things in order. She knows that his rudderless lifestyle is heading him down a dark path. She wants him to change. She also knows that boys like him can be an easy target for police. She knows they will eventually try to make him pay for something.
1: I say, yeah, you're probably right, Mom. I need to probably change a few things in census. So she starts me thinking in that census, you know, that if they're questioning me about a murder, maybe I am doing something a little different in my life. I eat dinner and I stay there with him talking and stuff like that. About 9.30 that night, the police come back and my dad answers the door. And the officer says, well, we have a few more questions for uh, William. And if he passes these tests we have for him, we won't bother him anymore. My dad turned to me and says, what you want to do? I said, Dad, I haven't committed any crime. I said, I can pass any test that they got. He said, you sure? I said, I'm dead sure, Dad.
2: His dad, Joe Dillon, remembers it perfectly, like a lingering nightmare.
3: And uh, a knock came at the door, Uh, and it was uh, a detective and a policeman, if I remember right, and uh, said, we'd like to talk to Bill, we'd like to take him downtown and talk to him, so. uh, Bill, of course, he didn't see any reason to suspect that he wouldn't be home back home that night. Anyway, he, uh, he never did come
0: home, so.
2: Here's Bill again, explaining what happened next.
1: I went with them. they put me in the car, took me with them. They pulled into the courthouse parking lot, it's about close to 10 now, or quarter till 10, somewhere in that area. And it's pitch dark. There's nobody in the parking lot but me in a car. They get out of the car, they park in the back, they get out of the car and leave me sitting and there's no handles, I can't get out of the car. So it's just the street lights, and there's hardly no lights in the courthouse. I'm in the side door of the courthouse, but I'm in the back of the parking lot. Finally, about 10 or 15 minutes later, somebody comes out, a bigger guy I've never seen seen before. comes out, and he opens the door and takes me into the side of the courthouse.
2: What he should have done was refuse and immediately hire a lawyer. We know that now, having the benefit of our 2020 hindsight vision— And so what follows is not only interesting, but kind of scary if you, like me, believe in justice. So Bill was led to a glass window where he was asked to stand for a while. After a little bit, he was asked to pull his hair back off his face and show more of it. Behind the glass was a man by the name of John Parker, who, like James Dvorak, was cruising the beach that night looking for a little action. And incredibly, like Dvorak, his appetite led to the same man the one who
3: killed James Dvorak. The eyewitness, uh, John Parker, he uh, was simply driving down the road looking to pick up somebody to have a sexual liaison with for the evening. And uh, he saw a man come out of uh, the park area, Canova Beach, um, with, um, he looked to be sweaty from far away It ended up being, he was bloody, had blood on him, and he was holding a bloody yellow T-shirt. and. Uh, It's kind of odd, but he decided that's who he wanted to pick up. So he picked this gentleman up. Um, uh, We call him the hitchhiker. And we think we know that this person now was the perpetrator and that person left this bloody t-shirt in Mr. Parker's truck and they uh, ended up having a a sexual, uh, a sexual relation in the truck. He dropped the man off um, in another place and he left the yellow t-shirt in the truck.
2: Yeah. So that happened. John Parker picks up a man covered in blood and decides that he wants to have oral sex with that man. The man then leaves the truck, and that is that. Except that in the morning, Parker finds a bloody yellow T-shirt in his truck and calls police after hearing about the murder on the TV news. He was sure the man he picked up had to be connected to the murder. But his description wasn't exactly a match for William Dillon, especially for a certain body part, as you'll hear Seth Miller explain.
3: His description of uh, uh, the perpetrator was completely at odds with the description of Bill Dillon. Um, he he gave um, uh, he gave a description about the perpetrator's um, you know sexual genitals that, that differs from that of Mr. Dillon's. I mean, um, he also was dark. You know, it's hard to see people at night. What Parker described the penis that he had encountered the night of the murder. Yep, that's right.
2: The alleged perpetrator's penis was, according to those with knowledge of the case curved with a large mole on it. Parker also described the man as having a mustache, and Bill had neither a growth on his penis nor a mustache. So now here is John Parker behind a one-way mirror staring at Bill Dillon. And guess what? He's unable to identify him as the man in his truck. Let me say that again. Parker says he is unable to say that William Dillon was the hitchhiker he picked up and had sex with. That should have been the end, right? Right? Nope, not a chance. Not when you have John Preston and his wonder dog harassed too. Here's Bill talking about his encounter with Preston.
1: I waited and waited and waited. Next thing I know, is a big old German Shepherd came in there. Big German Shepherd, and I don't mean like we know a German Shepherd. This dog was a German Shepherd, but it had a head that was like this. It had a huge basketball-sized head, and it kind of spooked me a little bit. I was kind of spooked by it because I didn't expect a dog to be popping his head in the door. And uh, he comes in and I am spooked by the dog. I start to get up into the back of the chair because I don't know what's going on. And he says, well, how does it feel to be tracked by harassed too? I said, tracked for what? He said, you'll see. And he pulled the dog and went back out the door. And they left me sitting there for a minute. And then they took me into the question room. And it was about three or four of them. And they were all questioning me concerning the crime. We feel like you would committed the crime. Uh, just tell us, just tell us, you know, what happened. We'll, uh, we'll go easy on you. Uh, we'll give you a manslaughter charge or, you know, just tell us what happened. Was it self-defense? You know, just continually talking to me over and over, trying to get me to say something about the crime. Then repeating the questions about where were you and, you know, you get angry all the time.
2: Of course, John Preston tells the detectives that the dog tied Dylan's scent from the wadded up piece of paper... To the bloody yellow t-shirt with the words SURFIT written on it. Then, according to Bill, he agreed to take a lie detector test. But before doing so, someone brings him a soda that, well, it just didn't taste right to Bill. Still, he's pretty thirsty and he drinks it. I think what Bill is trying to imply here is that the soda was tainted with something that might accelerate his heartbeat, causing him to seem deceitful on his polygraph test.
1: They come and tell me that the, the guy for the lie detector test is here. Now my stomach's doing flips. My stomach is doing real flips now because I've got to pass this. You know, this is no joke. I mean, I pass this and I'm gonna go free. You know, I'm, they're gonna leave me alone and there's not gonna be a problem. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, this will get it, you know, this will prove right here. You know, this, all this will stop here. The nightmare will stop right here. So I answer the questions as honestly as I can. I answer them as, you know, Danny any sense. I don't think he asked me any questions that were out of the way or anything, And you uh, know. He finished, I think it was 15, 20, 30 minutes, maybe the whole process, maybe a little longer. He packs it up and takes off and detective come back in and says, well, he says, you're lying. He says, you're lying about committing a crime.
2: It makes you wonder if they would have used the lie detector test had he passed it, like Wilton Dedge or like Gary Bennett. In Bennett's case, detailed in season one, we learned that even though he passed his polygraph test, the results were then brought to another officer to interpret, who then said, no, no, he, he failed. Wilton Dedge passed a lie detector test, and it was never brought up. So now Bill is brought into a room, and detectives are yelling at him, accusing him of murder, with the only evidence being the word of an absolute liar and dog handler John Preston, and a polygraph test. Right away, they start offering him a deal.
1: But there was multiple ones, and they were in there questioning, you know, a good guy, bad guy, and come on, man, and raging, you know, and talking about, you did it, why don't you say you did it? You did it, why don't you just get it off your chest? Just. You know you did it just multiple times, and other cops are saying, man, you just look at him, man. Just, just let them know, you know what I'm saying? You did it accidentally, or you, you're self-defense. or Just let him know, you know. But it was, a, it was a whole routine in a sense. Of course, I don't know it at the time. I know it now because of the years have passed. And, but I don't know it at the time. All I'm doing is, is getting angry At the fact that they keep continually saying that I committed this crime and I didn't commit this crime, so I'm firing right back at them. I'm firing it right back at them. I didn't have anything to do with this. Yeah, we know you did it. We know you did. The dog sniffed you. The lie, he failed the lie detector test. You know you committed the crime. I said, No, sir, I didn't commit the crime. And I broke down. You know, I was crying and everything, and I had multiple. Uh, multiple times where I was real angry and screaming at him at the same time and it was just a a nightmare that was unfolding and I I really thought that you know I still wasn't going to be arrested I thought they were just trying to get me to say that I confessed to the crime and I was not going to confess to the crime no matter what happened I was not going to confess to it because I didn't commit it well they finally break down about four o'clock in the morning somewhere around there and say well we're arresting you for this we're arresting you for murder okay I didn't commit the crime so they allow me one phone call I call my mom
2: next time on murder on the Space Coast
3: this is what a lot of uninformed people who have been blogging and twittering and writing in the newspaper don't understand everyone has a job it was not my job to determine mr. Dillon's innocence or guilt It was my job to take the evidence that was given to me by the sheriff's department and present that in the light most favorable to the state within the ethical rules and guidelines. And that is what I did.
1: The the part that troubled me, I recall this, was the the dog tracking uh, evidence. You know, it was kind of uh, uh, flimsy. You know, they, they had this dog uh, going across A1A, tracking across A1A with all the traffic that had gone by there. Uh, and you know, I I just kind of shook my head uh, uh, internally.
2: For now, I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J O H N A L B E R T O R R E S. And for more information on these cases and web exclusives, please go to Floridatoday.com. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John H. Juarez. The producer is Rob Landers, and the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network.